Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast, this is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and we look at their record collection and the stories from their life. Today I'm broadcasting from the FBI Radio studio in Redfern, which means I'm coming to you from unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Before I go any further, I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're already here. This is my last episode of Out of the Box for the year. So we're looking back on some of the moments from 2022 that resonated with me. These are conversations I still think about now, and I hope they've meant something to you too. Even though making this show is a very public journey, I feel like I really turned inward on Out of the Box over the past 12 months. You met people close to me, including my dad, and through that heard some pretty personal stories as well. And when I say I looked inward, I also mean I thought a lot about what it actually means to tell stories. Every conversation I had taught me something about music, about my guests, of course, about myself, and about the very art of storytelling. I learned that there are a million ways to share stories. It happens through the food we make, our creative pursuits, the way we build businesses, and the way we talk to each other. So for today's episode of Out of the Box, I wanted to revisit conversations with storytellers that floored me. It was really hard to whittle them down, but in the next hour, you'll hear from a game designer, a rapper, a creative producer, a poet, and an artist. The first conversation I want to share with you was the one I had with game designer at Wargaming, Holly Hawkins. Holly introduced me to a world that I knew nothing about, and through that, they also introduced me to problems I knew nothing about. Holly, last year you worked as an organiser of International Women's Game Jam. Can you first tell me what a game jam actually is? A game jam is an event where people form small teams and over a short period of time, normally a couple of days, will make a game from scratch to fit the theme of the event. And they happen in all sorts of scales. And International Women's Game Jam was an event that started overseas and had over 30 countries participating. And 2021 was the first year it happened in Australia and I helped out with that. So what does it mean to help out with that then? Are you kind of just organising different game designers from around the country to come together? Not really, because it's open to the public Mm. and all different skill levels are welcome. It was more hosting the event. Unfortunately... It happened during the second lockdown Mm. and we were supposed to have a Sydney site and a Melbourne site, but both of those were shut down, unfortunately. But the WA site, which was headed by Caitlin Lomax, that went ahead at Interstudio, which was really awesome. Tell me about the importance of having a women's game jam. Why does that matter? It's so important because it is a male-dominated industry From the IGEA 2020 to 2021 report on the Australian games industry, the gender demographic is 67% male, 23% female, 8% trans and 2% gender diverse. So it's not very equal. And it's an industry and a product that historically has always been male dominated. Mm. And you don't notice what you don't know. So it's so important to have a diversity of perspectives when you're crafting something in order to make a product accessible to all sorts of people. I'm learning throughout this interview that game design means so much more than just the visuals. And I think when I think about that gender disparity in game design, I think about what it means to have a man design a woman's body and perhaps the way that Men might put a female character in knee-high boots and give him a big old butt. (laughs) Absolutely. There's more to it than that, surely. There's more to it, absolutely. As you said, these characters that are created, they're created for a particular audience. A lot of the time when a game is trying to be more diverse and they say, well, we'll make half the characters women, 
it's done through a male gaze. Mm. So they're not designing female characters to be a power fantasy for female players. They're designing them to be a fantasy for male players, which, as you said, results in very sexy warriors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, other than the visuals, what happens when a man designs a game? Well, the history of games happens because for most of the history of games, it's been entirely designed by men. And a lot of modern games, they don't educate basic information required to play a game because it's taken for granted as assumed knowledge. You know, like everyone who plays games knows that you use WASD to walk around and your mouse to look around. But that type of design It's exclusionary to anyone who hasn't had the privilege of being included in the target market of games for its history. And the target market has historically been men? Men between the ages of 15 and 25. (laughs) And then therefore, sorry, I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. So do you mean therefore because like women haven't been the target market of games, they don't know how to play them? Yeah, and so a lot of very simple information as it's regarded by Mm. people who play games, you know, oh, we don't need to educate that because anyone who's been playing games for the last five years knows that. Yeah. They understand that, which makes these games almost impossible as a new first-player experience. So accessibility to gaming then... I know when you talked about accessibility before, you kind of talked about the coloration of things for people who might be dealing with colour blindness or, you know, other other parts like that, but it almost sounds like making a game accessible for women means making space for them to maybe not have that assumed knowledge. Absolutely. If you want women and girls to play your game, all of the information that you need to play the game and have fun needs to be educated within the game itself. If you're not educating these concepts and they need to look externally, that's another barrier. And it creates work for them. Exactly. And a lot of the time, if we try to engage with a product and we've exhausted all of the options to understand it from within it, we don't want to go that extra step of researching on our own how to play. Yeah, it's meant to be fun. Exactly. So what does a game look like that you think does that well? And what are some of the kind of components that you think make it really accessible for women and girls? I think a game that does a really good job of it is Team Fortress 2. I did a research project on Team Fortress 2 last year because my manager actually gave me the stats of the gender demographic of US players in 2019, which was 49% female. So nearly 50-50, which is wild. What are the stats normally? Oh, mid-20s, early 20s normally. Really? Yeah, yeah. If you get all the players of a game and group them by gender, Mm. normally it's about 25% of players of a game are female. Around a quarter, less than a quarter. Yeah, particularly multiplayer games. You see a rise with games like Stardew Valley and things that are more comforting and welcoming. Mm. But with competitive multiplayer, it's often in the early 20s. I'm just like wowed by this. (laughs) Holly, what's the next song you've chosen? The next song I've chosen was very relevant to my early 20s. It was sort of my gateway into psychedelic rock, which is one of my favourite genres of music. It also had a similar feeling of catharsis to Chameleon Paint where it was, you know, like putting on another face to suit the person next to you. And, you know, now same as Chameleon Paint, even though it doesn't have that catharsis, this is one of my favourite songs and has been for most of my life. It's Tame Impala's Alter Ego. You 
listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming via the podcast or the website fbiradio.com. That was Tame Impala. The song was called Alter Ego and it was chosen by Holly Hawkins on Out of the Box. But Holly's not my guest today. It's the end of 2022. So I'm doing a wrap up episode looking back on some of the special conversations I had this year, which means you're about to hear a new voice. It's the voice of Tasman Keith. He's a rapper from Barrowville who now calls Sydney home and I got to chat to him ahead of the release of his album, A Colour Undone. I kind of want to paint a picture of what your life looked like when your first EP, Mission Famous, came out. Mm. Where were you living at the time? I was in uni accommodation in Ultimo in Waddle Lane. So you um, gave uni a second go? Yeah, I, I went back after working in Barrowville. Um, and to be to be honest, I used university as a way to get back into the city of like... Okay, accommodation, of course, you have to pay for it, but it's not as expensive as rent, or I, I don't have to go and live with my auntie who has 10 other people in the crib. So I was living there. I was working very hard, but I wasn't necessarily taking care of myself the way that I should have been. Um, and I was being quite ignorant to like, if I just work hard, that's enough. You know what I mean? So I was in a, I was in a, I was in a very interesting spot. Um, but also I was I was very excited and I was very, I guess, starry-eyed and like, first EP and really pushing and and felt like it was the time where I started to get recognition. So what does it mean to be studying? Because you were studying music, weren't you? Yeah, music and sound design. Music and sound design. So what does it mean to be studying those things and then also be an emerging artist? Wouldn't you feel almost like you don't need to be in those classes? Yeah, well, it was was funny because like my brother was in the same course and think he started a year after me and then the next year they asked me to speak at the lecture um as like as Tasman Keith um, and your brother was in the lecture yeah and this dude <gasps> sat right up the front and just stared at me the whole time I was like, Bro. Um, but <laughs> but yeah it was, it was a weird balance it was like I think that's why I did kind of skip a little bit because I was like I'm doing this and I need to put energy into this and I feel like looking back now I definitely could have you know done both um, but I think my mind was so set on what I wanted to do as an artist, so I kind of ignored what that could do to help me as an artist. But I also know that like the things I decided to do instead is what led me to where I'm at. Mission Famous kind of looks back at your early life with a lot mm-hmm. of pride. When you talk about this drive that you had to make that EP, is it the drive to be a musician or is it the drive to tell that story or is it both? Um, I think first of all, it just came from like wanting to make an EP. And then I had a conversation with uh, my producer at the time, James Mangohig, and I showed him some of the cousin's songs from like early days and even some of the uncle's songs. And he was like, you know, where where did this go? Did it do anything? And I was like, nah, I was just famous on the mission. I was like, mission famous. And then that moment was like, ah, <laughs> okay, that's pretty hard. And then like we made, so we made the song Mission Famous first. And then as we continued to make the EP, we just kind of locked in on that narrative. And I think the natural progression was just like me then thinking, okay, yeah, I want to make a first EP, but what do I want to do musically? And in the industry, that kind of like, regardless of where it goes, people can look back at the first project and see exactly where I come from. And that was the intention. I think that's really amazing to point forward in that way and think about laying a foundation for your own career. And it was and is a really amazing EP. I think as an emerging artist, it really launched you into all of our hearts and minds. We certainly loved it here at FBI. And putting out a debut EP is exciting. It's a huge achievement to get that out into the world. But I guess I'm wondering if when you think about that time in your life, you think about the excitement or if you have positive associations with that. Yeah. Um, so what, what happened around that EP was we we went back to Barrowville the day of the EP release um, and we had a a show in like a show slash party in the back <laughs> of mom's in the back of mom's yard. Um, and we got, you know, a car trailer for the stage, we got a PA system, um, invited all the fam to celebrate this moment. Um, and my uncle was there, um, my great uncle, Uncle Job, and, you know, I I saw him that day as well downtown, said hello to him, had a yarn with him. Um, unfortunately, in that night, I think I only saw him really briefly. Um, I didn't really get to see him that much. 
because I was so in like show mode um, and just talking to everybody else as well. We we finished the night. It's great. Of course, there was a couple of fights that almost happened. So I had to, you know, get on the microphone and be like, look, we're here for a bigger reason or that bullshit. Leave it at the door. And everybody respected that, which is coming from the young cousin. You know what I mean? Mm. And what we're there to celebrate. So they're like, uh, yep, okay. Um, anyway, night finishes, wake up. We had a plan to shoot the Mission Famous video on Barrival Golf Course. Um, me and my cousin Marbuck jump in the car and we're driving up Barrival Mission and I get pulled up um, by by another cousin and he's like, oh, did you hear? And I was like, nah, like what happened? And he's like, Uncle Joby just passed away last night. Um, I kind of was, you know, uh, I've always had a tendency to kind of be quite how would I put it? I guess I guess I put it to the side um, and deal with it when I feel like I sh- need to deal with it. Um, so I'm quite good at like compartmentalizing death. Um, and so naturally, I was sitting with my cousin. I was like, you know, do I tell my brother or because he's on set waiting? Um, I'm like, do I tell my brother or do I just get the job done and then tell him after? And I, you know, we just we spoke and I agreed with my cousin that like, nah, tell your brother. Got to the golf course, uh, broke the news to him. And he's somebody that feels things in real time. Um, and he broke down, started crying. And, you know, I had to spend a moment with him. And I just said to him, I was like, look, let's shoot this video. Let's get this done for him and for us. And then let's go home and deal with it. So we're shooting the video with all this in our mind. Um, you know, halfway through, dad comes up the golf course and he's yelling out to us because he doesn't know if we know yet. Um, so we go and see him and he's like, did you hear him? We're like, yeah, yeah. Had a moment with dad and he said the same thing. He's like, get this done. He's like, you know, do it for the reason you're doing it and then come home and, and we'll sort it. Um, went home, spent that time with mum, dad and, and Uncle Joe actually left his uh, hat on the coffee table, which he always did. And so like when I got back, it was just the realisation of like, damn, like he ain't here, you know what I mean? And then we started talking and it's like, mum's like, he also gave you your name, remember? And then all these things that you know, a crucial to my life, which he's a big part of, um, I had to deal with. I had to go, had to come back to Sydney the day after or two days after to continue the Mission Famous tour. And I think uh, we got to the Newcastle show the following weekend. Um, we did the Newcastle show. And the next day I had to drive up to Barrow because it was the day of the viewing. Um, drove to the viewing, pulled up, went inside, said, you know, say goodbye to him and all that. And my, my uncle, my other uncle, he's like, could you, he's like, do you have the Mission Famous EP? The hard copies here. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm on, you know, they're in the car. Um, and he's like, could you leave one at his feet? Because all the nephews are leaving something at his feet in the coffin. That kind of like um, means a lot to them and will mean a lot to him. So there were some cousins that left like a grand final trophy or like um, whatever it may be. And I left my, my EP, um, you know, gave him a kiss on the forehead, say goodbye to him. Uh, walked out and then the same uncle was like um, do you mind being a pallbearer tomorrow and I was like of course uncle like anything um, and he's like you know when you bring him into the cemetery if it's okay with you we're gonna play your song my Plopolis and of course I was like yeah because that was the last song he heard it was the last song he heard last song he heard last thing he heard he saw me perform that song um, last song he heard and that song is about you know, once passing and your spirit living forever in community. And so, like, a week later, I'm now, you know, um, carrying my uncle on my shoulders to this song and watching the coffin go down in the grave to this song. Um, and that whole, once that happened and I kind of had a minute to reflect and live through it, I was like, regardless of what this EP does now, the job is done. Like, the fact that, you know, because there were some things in in the talks where that EP wasn't supposed to come out until four months later, but I pushed for certain things. And so it was all like the timing of it and what it did and what it was able to provide me and my family and my uncles and everybody in that time. Like a week after, I was already so detached from the success of it because for me, it was already successful in family and community and meant a lot more. What does it mean to have your EP play such a huge role in such a personal family event and be so cathartic in a funeral and then 
have to take that to stages and perform it to strangers. What is that like? For me, it's great because it's like a celebration of it. You know what I mean? It's a celebration of life and a celebration of of what I've what I've what I've done with that and what I did with that. And of course, always a reminder when I perform it. But like, I I think because of the way I've I've grown up and and uncles like Uncle Job, I am able to see the importance in these things and and be able to not necessarily push it to the side anymore, but deal with it and express how I've dealt with it. Um, and so every time I perform that song, it's like there's some white kids in the crowd that sing a Mission Famous and they've never been to a mission in their life. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I'm not ignorant to what this song has done now for the perception of a mission, you know what I mean? Um, but of course, there's still that underlying thing. But I think it all just equates to what that song means to me, uh, regardless of performing it or not performing it. You haven't released a body of work since. Mm-hmm. You've got your album coming up soon, which we will talk about later in the show. And I do want to talk about maybe what it means to release an album that doesn't have such a huge part of your family life. But mm. first, you've chosen a song by Tupac. Yep. Why did you pick this one? Because uh, it reminds me of, you know, my my cousins and home and around you know, post-Mission Famous, I remember just playing a bunch of, of Park and and reminiscing on hearing my cousins playing that and just, like, feeling at home through that music. This is Tupac on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called Life Goes On. How many brothers fell victim to the street? Rest in peace, son. There's a heaven for you. Be alive if I told you that I never thought of that. My niggas, we the last ones left. But life goes on. How many brothers fell victim to the street? Rest in peace, young nigga. There's a heaven for you. Be alive if I told you that I never thought of death. My nigga, we the last ones left. Life goes As on. I bail through the empty halls, breath stinking in my drawers. Ring, ring, ring. Quiet, y'all. Life goes on. It was Tupac on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull and today on the show we're doing a 2022 retrospective episode where we look back on some of the special moments that I've had on Out of the Box this year. There were so many to choose from but the next conversation is the one that I had with creative producer Maeve Marsden. Maeve is an independent artist, the mind behind queer stories and also just kind of a cool auntie. You'll hear why in a moment. But yeah, the grab that I'm about to play for you was actually a pretty pivotal moment for me on Out of the Box because it was the moment I realised that I had been asking questions for a heterosexual audience and by that I mean asking LGBT plus people to explain or justify or contextualise their experience when that's not really their job. Um, So I was really grateful for this conversation with Maeve and it kind of changed the way that I did the show moving forward. See, the funny thing is that even the phrase come to terms with your sexuality is sort of sounds like a kind of heterosexual read on the experience. That's the whole world's understanding of being queer is that you will have to come to terms with it. Whereas for me, queerness was the state of normalcy. So there was no coming to terms with it. It was just like at a certain point in my adolescence, I was attracted Mm. to women and, and that was totally accepted in my household. They were slightly cheeky when I said I was bisexual as a teenager and they were like, don't be ridiculous, Maeve, make a decision. Not that I'm outing my parents <laughs> as being biphobes. They weren't. They were teasing me. Um, and then at a certain point in my early 20s, I had sex with a man and I didn't like it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is probably not for me. And then I kind of considered queer is the word that I like the best because it leaves openness to possibility. But the, I suppose I, for me, sexuality is like this ongoing sense of being rather than a turning point or a moment of revelation that I think a lot of people have because I didn't have anything to come up against like I never I didn't have to sort of come out I came out to friends and I came out we all come out all the time but I think having a home space where whoever you are is going to be accepted is this kind of liberating and relatively alien concept to most people who grew up in straight families Um, they can't imagine not having to have hidden something even if they only had to hide it briefly so yeah so I I came out at high school to my friends and most of my friends were from kind of progressive lefty inner west families who had a real mix of parents there was another kid whose mother was a lesbian there's a woman whose um, parent later came out as trans you know like we were from a pretty accepting community so we all just made out throughout year nine and that was my coming out and then I ran off to university and foolishly took myself 
to a rural area where I went to uni in Bathurst, where of course there were other queer people, but fewer than I would have encountered had I stayed in Sydney. So probably the closest I came to having any difficulties with being queer was the years that I was at uni, even though I had lots of queer friends and people were on the surface accepting. There was just fewer options for kind of queer friends or for romance out there. So I came to Sydney having finished my degree out there and I sort of didn't quite know what I was doing. I don't think I'd kind of had a two-year relationship in Bathurst that had ended in a blaze of misery. Now, of course, we're best friends because we're gay and I'm like godmother to her children. But at the time, blaze of misery. Um, And... um, (laughs) And so I came back not quite sure what to do with myself. And I got a job working in kind of arts admin and event management. And what I was yearning for was less or the theatre I'd been making and more a queer community because it had been absent. And, yeah, I often tease that first girlfriend and say I couldn't have any other relationships in Bathurst because all the other lesbians had had sex with her, which is not untrue. Um, And so I came back and I just kind of, when oh, a career in the arts isn't going to happen for me, not that an arts admin isn't a career in the arts and arts administrators and producers are inherent to our industry, but a creative kind of directing or performing or writing the things that I thought I wanted to do. I just was like, it's going to be too hard. I want to meet gays and party. So I worked for like 10 years doing a mix of event management production management and kind of arts admin for a bunch of non-profits and government agencies whilst I found queers in Newtown and lived in share houses and slept with my friends and had messy fights in share houses with the friends that I'd been sleeping with and Mm. took drugs and danced and partied and found the queer community that I kind of hadn't had at uni. And so my career stalled, but I think that part of my life was really integral. I'm really glad I did that messy stuff. I travelled a lot and I was a messy person in their 20s. <laughs> Let's soundtrack this period yes. of your life, Maeve. What song have you picked to play next? So I've chosen a more recent song um, because I was too off my face to remember what songs <laughs> I was dancing to back then. Um, but this song is Tightrope by Janelle Monet, and it really just exemplifies that absolute loose, fun dancing where you're in your body. I hear it and I can't be still, and that reminds me of my 20s. Amazing. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 with me, Mia Hull, and Maeve Marsden, who chose this song. It's Tightrope by Janelle Monet. They trying to take all of your dreams, but you can't allow it. Cause baby, whether you're high or low, or whether you're high or low, you got to tip on the tightrope. Tip on the tightrope. Janelle Monet on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Tightrope. You are listening to Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Maeve Marsden, the chooser of that song. And we just talked about your 20s being this integral time that was kind of messy, but kind of important and kind of a sidestep from what you have ended up doing, which is working in the arts. So I want to talk about that return to Mm. the arts. For someone who's maybe not familiar with queer stories, Maeve, can you tell Mm. me what it is and how it began? Yeah. So the premise of queer stories is really simple. It's a live event where six LGBTQI plus storytellers share a 10 to 12 minute story from their life. That's the brief. (laughs) Um, I say to storytellers, please tell a story that you want to tell, but are never asked to, which is my way of kind of going, don't tell the story, the sort of cishet mainstream asks of you. You don't have to come out. You don't have to explain yourself. We're not asking for a corporate awareness training on your identity we're asking for a personal story and that might be about your sexuality or or gender identity but it might be about your favorite hobby or your mum or a relationship you had or a trip you went on it can be anything it doesn't have to be queer Mm. a queer story and so that was the premise and I started doing them in 2015 to see if the idea took you know like just I felt like I was just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck and people loved it and so I started doing them as free events through the city of Sydney at late night library and then started doing them every month at Giant Dwarf in 2017. 
and it just took off. And I think queers want to listen to each other's stories and haven't always been in the history books or in mainstream media, although that's changing. And I kept just looking for new people who would have different stories to tell and who I found interesting. And I wasn't just looking for famous queers, I was looking for a person on the street who could hold someone's attention for 10 minutes. And so I would work with these, I would work with the writers, sometimes quite hands-on with the storytelling, sometimes someone just writes a perfect 12 minutes and I don't touch it. And I just started producing them. So then I started doing them in Melbourne and regional areas and Brisbane. Phoebe, who I mentioned earlier, ended up at the Brisbane Powerhouse. So now I have a relationship with them and writers Mm. festivals. And now it's, gosh, I think there's more than 300 people who've performed at the events and I share them on the podcast. And again, I never set out to be a podcaster. I just wanted somewhere to put (laughs) the stories after they'd been told. And yeah, it kind of went from there. So now it's a massive part of my job, queer stories and yeah, the podcast, the book, and the oh, there's a book of them. I'm so good at selling my work, um, and <laughs> and all about women, which we'll and get so to all about women this show. weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing I, so I, well. At I this. find that so interesting, though. I've not really considered that. You know, when when queer people do share their stories, it's in the context of education. Uh, oh, no matter how many different strategies I use to try to convince the storytellers I book not to go into an educational mode, I still get stories submitted to me that are like, this is what gay people experience or this is what a non-binary identity is. And of course, we think we have to explain because we're constantly asked to, and especially trans people are really asked to explain and justify their identities, but cis people who are queer are as well. Um, still explaining themselves to people. And so trying to get people on board with going, just talk about yourself, you're not responsible to explain your whole community or your whole identity to an audience goes against everything we're told every day. But working on that can be quite liberating for the writers and mostly they come back and they're like, oh, wow, I just get to talk about how I'm obsessed with Irish dancing or that was a beautiful story by Hayden Moon Um, or I just get to talk about um, my childhood and I don't have to put in the caveat of which pronouns I'm using when and I just get to be a storyteller without expectation and it can be really liberating for the for the storytellers and I suppose that's like what I was saying earlier about how liberating it was to grow up in a family where my sexuality wasn't going to be something I had to hide or question I suppose I'm trying to give someone a 10 minute experience Mm. of that on stage um and the stories that have come out of that have been beautiful and you know six five or six years six years I've been doing them and I'm not sick of reading the stories and I still receive people send me their story copy and it lands in my inbox and I still often weep because the stories are so beautiful or interesting and that's a lovely um, job to have. Let's play a Leonard Cohen song, Maeve. (laughs) Okay. The song I've chosen is I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen. So when I was talking about Lady Sings It Better and singing these powerful songs written by men, I'm Your Man was the kind of genesis of that. And without Lady Sings It Better, Queer Stories doesn't happen because Lady Sings It Better was this gateway to me having a career in the arts at all. Um, And so this song was my first solo when I came back to working in the arts. I sang it a cappella at the first Lady Sings It Better concert and when I talk about having ego as a performer I still remember the exact quality of the applause after I sang it for the first time and I still remember a voice going oh that lady does sing it better and I know that that's like super ego driven (laughs) but (laughs) but that hunger for audience and for applause comes through all my work it's part of everything that I do it's I'm an attention-seeking little mite and this song is really like for me is such an incredible expression of desire. It's dominating, but it's also vulnerable. And Leonard Cohen is an incredible songwriter. He's my favorite storyteller. So that's why I chose it. Or I crawl to baby and I fall at your feet and I howl at your beauty, let the dog in heat and I clog your heart and I tear at your sheet, I'd say please. I'm your man. 
This track beneath me is by Leonard Cohen. It's called I'm Your Man. And you're hearing it on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. We're doing a 2022 retrospective episode. So this song came from the conversation I had with Maeve Marsden in March. I want to read you some of the messages that came through on the text line while this episode was airing because there's such a special reminder of the way that our stories can resonate with different people. So one says, I just tuned in and want to shout out to you. I love Leonard Cohen. Great track. Thank you. Happy days. (laughs) There's another text that says, loving the story and interview today, having so many laughs while cooking my lunch. Thanks for the cute queer content. Peace. So a bit of context. We also played Dolly Parton in this episode. And this last text comes from someone called Rasheen. They said, hello, Mia and Maeve. I hope this reaches you. Just a shout out to say thank you so much for producing such a beautiful program and for Maeve sharing your story. I just happened to tune in on my lunch break and this has been such a beautiful experience. This story was really moving and I have really appreciated it. One of my mums used to play Leonard Cohen all the time, definitely one of my favourite storytellers, and my other mum played Dolly Parton. Also, your story has given me insight into myself that I didn't expect on why I love telling stories. I will definitely be listening to this program again. Have a beautiful day. That was a really nice reminder of why I do this show. I find those moments so, so special. And I want to jump into another special moment with you now. It was the conversation I had with my dad on Out of the Box. And no, it wasn't because I couldn't find a guest to have on the show that week. He's a poet and an artist and a Barkindji man. So I was interested to learn a bit more about his and my, I guess, heritage. I'd like to say, you know, and I was sitting down and someone told me the story, but there was always uh, a bit of a filter of uh, an Aboriginal backstory in our life. When my father died and his sister died, uh, a bunch of things sort of came out and I can't really remember how. Some cousins sort of t- gave us some information and my wife at the time, who was a really, and well, still is, a fantastic researcher, uh, did a little bit about digging, sort of chase these, chase these sort of swirling stories up a little bit and through local contacts and through some really sort of fortuitous documentation was able to I guess lay the story out in front of me and say look can you see this this is your father this was his mother this is her mother here she is identified at the Buwarana mission this is her mother um, you know who was taken away from Kalara station out the river here's all the documentation so when I say that um let me just give you a bit of context. The story of Western New South Wales, as for a lot of Australia, uh, is the story of Aboriginal people being disenfranchised from their country. So uh, they get um, pastoralism sweeps through the country. The Aboriginal people get swept up into little camps and then taken away to other places, uh, missions like Sherberg in Queensland. And just upriver from us, there was a major mission at Brewarrina. Uh, and so all these people who never belong together end up in these you know, sort of confined spaces and have to work out how to live together. Mostly they didn't like that very much. Um, they weren't used to actually getting along together. And so the missions were largely a failure. And then when people left them and they, they got the opportunity to get away, they, they tried to go home, but their home wasn't there anymore because it had been swept up uh, through pastoralism. So they went you know, drifted into the nearest community, and the nearest large community at that time was Burke. So... Um, in the mission that where my great-grandmother had been taken, uh, at different times they had different anthropologists, ethnologists, um, linguists. Uh, people come and sort of try to learn more about Aboriginal people because, you know, they had a lot of them there. Um, and so my family was documented in, at that time. So there's this incredibly detailed documentation of my great great grandmother i mean the sort of stuff you can never really you wouldn't believe how much documentation is there they measured the the size of you know her upper eyelid her lower eyelid her nostril width the upper lip the lower lip the skin color the skin color of different places on her body the her eye color her hair color you know the you know whether her chin sat forward or back. These really, you know, so much detailed information um, that doesn't say, oh, and she, you know, her lips look like this, and they go like this when she smiles, or she laughs a lot, or her eyes 
that which are this color that we grade on our one to eight scale you know sparkle or are sad or are whatever so i know all this information but i don't know any story about her Mm. um so it's really you know for someone who likes a story it's like a a bunch of fishing lures hanging out in front of you just asking you to bite into them so to, like to understand where all this information comes from but also it sort of explains a whole lot of other things it explains how you know why my grandmother lived way down the end of town you know where the aboriginal mission was that explains that now because they were going oh you know they just made their way over the levee we gradually made our way into town that's what happened. Um, so it became a really important story in my life. It's one I continually struggle to try and understand. You know, the conversations I have with my sister and cousins uh, are along those lines. It's like, well, we actually owe it to our great-grandmother to be proud of that now and not to sort of, um, you know, keep that myth or keep that story hidden away or keep her life hidden away. But You know, the reason I said my my father and his sister um, died in the same year and then the story came out was because, you know, up to sort of that point, um, it wasn't really, you know, it was was more likely that you would be, uh, you know, you would conceal uh, your, that sort of heritage. You know, not long before that, the policy was to assimilate, to take away the Aboriginal people. And certainly my grandmother was probably told to keep her Aboriginality well and truly concealed. That filtered very much through to my father. And by the time I came along, you know, the, the story was almost erased from the, from the ledger. Dad, what's the next song you've picked? Uh, the next song I picked is called Broken Song. It's from an artist named Neil Murray. Uh, and through my sort of extended musical family, he's sort of... Uh, in the extended musical family, I've got to play with him a couple of times, but he's a really well-known um, Australian artist. He was uh, in the Warumpi band, and um, he's a bit of a living treasure, really. Um, we like to think of him as you know, the grand old uncle of our extended musical family. But this song is along the lines of what we were just talking about, and it's along the line of uh, an art project I'm working on now, which is to to look at those... Um, disconnections those broken things those fracture points in our lives in our stories in our cultural frameworks and and not hide them but you know almost like the japanese art form of kintsugi you know paint them with gold and show them up and make them more beautiful and own up own them and you know move forward in life sort of embracing the broken bits You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm sitting down with my dad, Andrew Hull, and he's chosen this song. It's by Neil Murray. It's called Broken Song. Our customs, they were banned. Now the songline is broken. People are choking. Losing our direction. Culture is eroding. I wish I could remember what my father tried to show me and pick up what's come undone. Broken Song. It was Neil Murray on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was chosen by my dad, Andrew Hull, because we're looking back on some of the special moments that I've had on Out of the Box this year as part of our 2022 wrap-up. I hope these conversations meant something to you as well, but we've got one more to squeeze in before my hour's up. So I want to play you some of the conversation I had with Dylan Hardcastle earlier this year. Dylan is an author, artist, screenwriter and scholar, and they spent time working as an artist in residence in Antarctica. Before I met Dylan, I thought that everyone who works in Antarctica is a scientist and they're just, you know, collecting quantitative data. But um, that's not the case at all. What Dylan does is very much qualitative. And I just loved listening to the way that they described the world around them. I, I, yeah, I went as an artist. So I was painting on the ship the whole time that we were there. And then I came back and had an exhibition and collaborated with her charity called love your sister um and we donated half of the profits of the exhibition to love your sister and yeah i produced a like a body of work that was 
called Deep Silence, I think. It was basically sort of combining all of these like paintings of icebergs with texts and poems that I'd written while we were there. And like, I mean, Antarctica changed me in such profound ways. I think like I had, um, I'd had a boyfriend for four years and we broke up just before I went. And I mean, I I've, was already obsessed with glacier ice Um, just so entirely fascinated by glacier ice as being this sort of library of ice that holds all all of these tiny pockets of air you know if you dig down into them you'll find all these tiny pockets of air that tell you the story of distant worlds and so I was loved this idea that I was breaking down and dissolving when I was in Antarctica and I could feel this change occurring in a really similar way perhaps to the way these glaciers that I witnessed carving where the ice would fall off the front of the glacier and dissolve into the sea and all these stories would return to the ocean and kind of learning that beauty and loss are intimately bound up together and that I guess there's like grace in in letting go and letting yourself be transformed and yeah then when I came back from Antarctica um like I had my first like queer intimacy and I think yeah I'd I'd broken up with my boyfriend saying oh there's something I need to figure out about myself I'm not entirely sure what it is but I know I need to be alone to do it and then when I got back from Antarctica I rang him up and was like oh I'm just gay like (laughs) and he was like cool I'm glad you found out what you're looking for so much to unpack there but no, I, I love I love that idea of the stories returning to the sea. And I guess, you know, we kicked off this interview talking about the sea as a place that you had come from. You mentioned a boat as the place where your time in Antarctica had been spent. Was it all on the boat or were you actually living on on the ice? We we were I was on the boat for three weeks and then or sorry, not three weeks, like two, two I think it was two weeks. And then we slept one night on the continent, not in tents, but in waterproof Mm. sleeping bags in the ice. And we essentially dug like what looked like graves in the ice with um, shovels and then lay waterproof mats and waterproof sleeping bags in these like single person graves, I guess, and went to sleep in them. And the silence during the middle of the night was so overwhelming that I thought that my ears had stopped working and I was coughing and like rustling my sleeping bag and making all of these sounds just to check that I could mm. still hear because the yeah it was like this total absence of sound and then I fell asleep and at three o'clock in the morning it was light because it was the middle of summer and I woke up to the most like terrifying or like horrifyingly beautiful sound of this glacier carving on the other side of the bay where it was you know all breaking and splitting and cracking off and I sat up in the sleeping bag was watching this you know millennia old glacier was essentially a frozen river falling into the ocean and then in the middle of the bay between me and this ice breaking off was a pot of humpback whales was feeding and you know surfacing and their tails were coming out of the water and I just sat up and I was like I will never be able to put this into words Mm. like this is yeah I will never capture this with words. I'm just interested in the choice to actually go to Antarctica in the first place where was that born from? I was just so fascinated by this land that was almost entirely ice and then when I was 20 maybe I was visiting family in Wales and I went to Iceland and I saw this glacier lagoon and started yeah thinking about like ice as this kind of depository mm. of stories and yeah just was like that it that it does it just holds all these stories of like time and um long ago and that when you relate to it and this like old old water yeah that you're kind of tapping into something way bigger than than yourself and than your existence do you feel like you deposited any of your stories into the ice while you were there 
Yeah, well, I jumped into the water in a bikini. Um, and it was, I think it was one degree, the water. And I came up and surfaced and, like, I think as a queer person who had been performing um, sort of hyper-femininity for a lot of my teenage years, really struggling in my body, to be in this water that was, like, really, I mean, so cold and... It just sucked all of the air out of me as I came up and I, I breathed back in and I felt like my lungs had just shrunk. But I, I had such a shot of adrenaline jumping into the water that I could feel my breath going through all of my body. Like I felt so acutely aware of my breath and it really brought me into myself and made me feel really strong in my body and kind of was the first time I'd really felt at home and centered in my body which again was quite profound. Mm. What's the next song that you've chosen today? Uh, This song is called People I've Been Sad by Christine and the Queens. I um, love this song so much and I like I have synesthesia and I see colour sort of bloom behind my eyes when I listen to music but also when I feel pain and pleasure and this song I think ties in quite perfectly here. There's a lot of the colours that I saw in Antarctica, which I think most people expected to be this like blank white space, but there is so much color there, like neon blue, glacial ice, these incredible sunsets that last for hours, and you know, pink skies reflected in, in the water, all this really interesting green moss and orange algae and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this song for me, when I listen to it, is is just like such a colourful song. Like I see really amazing colours when I listen to it and I think that yeah, that ties in here nicely because it is that same kaleidoscopic um, colour thing that that I saw in Antarctica. On FBI Radio ninety four point five, this song is called People I've Been Sad. It's by Christine and the Queens. Christine and the Queens, the song was called People Have Been Sad and you heard it here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Mia Hull. Thank you so much for keeping me company this past hour. It's been such a pleasure looking back on all the special moments that I had on this show this year and I can't wait for what the future holds. Before I go, I want to give a big shout out to everyone who made Out of the Box possible this year. My producers, Tash Noor, Ella Stewart, Emma Higgins, Rebecca Merrick, Claudia Copeland, Luke Wallace and Mary Ventura. I also want to give a special shout out to Sam Dover who helps me edit this show and does such a wonderful job of it. Thank you, Sam. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. It's been so great having you this year. I'll see you in 2023. Okay, lunch up next. (laughs) Bye.